Ever wonder what makes the greats great? What makes the successful successful? What makes the brilliant brilliant? Our Tuesday meetups with the celebrities of pharma industry and science are your one-stop shop to all these answers and more. Join us for Pies of Life, an initiative of the Biopatrika Industry Mentorship Program, where we bring your dream mentors to you. Welcome all to our Pies of Life. This Tuesday, we are honored to welcome the man who has successfully traversed Whitaker's kingdoms. From a plant biologist to the assistant director of the Purdue Institute of Inflammation, Immunology and Infectious Disease. Oh yes, that is quite a leap. He's also the vice chair of the steering committee at the Big Ten Cancer Research Consortium Foundation. And if that wasn't enough, Professor Sor spends his leisure hours building the COVID-19 diagnostic sensor with his company, Identify Sensors Biologics, to help humankind even more. Now, that is not a person we meet every day. Welcome to Ateate with Thomas Soares. Tommy, I'd like to invite you to tell us your life story in your words, and you can share your screen if you like. Great. Thank you so much. And it's a pleasure uh, to have uh, the opportunity to speak to you and have uh, the honor of being invited to this wonderful session. Um, I'll try to go fairly quickly through my initial stages and not bore you too much with too many details, but there's a lot of good juicy stuff there, good science that I'm excited to tell you about. And, and I, hopefully you can be inspired. Uh, one thing that I will say is like many of us scientists, I've been inspired and very much uh, moved by the people I've interacted with in my life. So I'm uh, very much like uh, Ulysses' poem says, I'm a part of all that I have met. And really these people have been my mentors and uh, have inspired me to keep going and moving forward. So my venture into plant sciences really started one day when I was with a friend and we saw a firefly uh, go by and I said, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we could transfer the firefly genes into a plant and make it glow in the dark? And that inspired me to really start learning about molecular biology, about plant biology, plant physiology, and try to pursue this idea of genetic engineering of plants. And at first, when I got the idea, I, I thought, okay, well, I have to go start talking to plant biologists. And I had the opportunity of working with Dr. Roger Horton at the University of Guelph in Canada. Um, it's a, Guelph is a, is a city about 45 minutes west of Toronto, Canada. And that gave me the opportunity of doing this experiment where we start looking at the transpiration rate of barley leaves that were exposed to gibberellins. Gibberellins, if you didn't know, are these plant hormones that causes the shoot elongation to occur. And we were looking at how much water would be transpired with different concentrations of the gibberellins. And that was a very interesting uh, experience. 
Um, I learned a lot from that, especially how little I knew about statistics and how embarrassed you can be if you really don't know your statistics and you're talking to other scientists about the experiments that you're doing. So it was really early in my career that it said to me, oh, you, I, you really need to be prepared and you need to work hard in order to handle the different situations and be able to defend what you did. Um, so when I pursued a master's uh, degree, I ended up working with this professor named Stephen Boley, who is an alfalfa breeder. And alfalfa is, uh, is an obligate outcrosser. It's an allotetraploid. And to breed a tetraploid, you really need to know your statistics. You really need to know your genetics. And I learned a lot from this man in that respect. But I had the opportunity of keeping to pursue this, um, this passion for creating transgenic plants. And I got the opportunity of working with transgenic alfalfa, one of the largest hay crops in North America. Um, that uh, alfalfa grown in Canada is exposed to a lot of cold temperatures and winter hardiness was something that we were trying to improve in the plant. And so I started working with transgenic alfalfa expressing a pyrophosphate dependent phosphofructokinase enzyme from this uh, parasite, Giardia lamblia. And the reason was that the phosphofructose kinase, this pyrophosphate dependent phosphofructokinase from Giardia was bidirectional. And we thought that that would give the plant a metabolic flexibility to take and remobilize starches and more complex sugars and mobilize them into more soluble sugars uh, for regrowth and also for uh, protection uh, during the winter uh, months. Um, so that really, again, exposed me a lot to research, to plant metabolism, and I wanted to continue to pursue this. Um, so I started doing uh, this work at Purdue University for my PhD under the guidance of Jeff Bolenek in the Department of Agronomy. And what I was trying to do was really understand a particular promoter element that was controlling the vegetative storage protein genes in alfalfa. You see, alfalfa is a perenniating plant. And so when winter comes, the shoot die off and the, the, the root itself has to maintain throughout the winter uh, to then survive and allow for spring regrowth to occur. And a lot of the, uh, the reserves uh, for spring regrowth are stored in the root in the fall and are remobilized in the springtime to allow for shoots to regrow before the plant is able to do any photosynthesis. And so there's these vegetative storage proteins that allow alfalfa uh, to hydrolyze these proteins, break them down and feed amino acids to the regrowing uh, spring shoots. And so that was, again, a lot of physiology, a lot of metabolism. And I brought this element of molecular biology to the lab from my master's degree. But I saw that things were kind of moving a little bit slow and I was more ambitious than, than that. And I wanted to get into a lab that was really publishing and was really 
cranking out papers. And I was exposed to this lab. Um, oh, sorry. I'll, I'll, so here's where I was talking about the remobilization of these particular uh, uh, vegetative storage proteins and how the, they were controlled uh, by these particular promoter elements. But being more ambitious, I wanted to pursue uh, more action. I wanted to uh, learn more, and I wanted—I was excited about this lab that was at Purdue um, in the horticulture department, uh, where we were looking at um, particular metal accumulating plants. And one of the projects that uh, Professor David Salt, who was my PhD advisor, was working on was looking at how particular plant species accumulate selenium from the soil. And selenium is, a, is an element that is very similar to sulfur. And so you can feed selenium to any plant that accumulates sulfur and it will choke itself. It will accumulate it as if it were sulfur. And the reason is that selenium exists very much like sulfur as these uh, common anions, as uh, you know, you see sulfite or sulfate in, in the environment, and you typically see selenite, selenate uh, as well. And so the plant confuses these two and ends up making proteins with selenite, selenite and, and selenium instead of sulfite. And so these disulfide bridges now become diselenide bridges. And so the protein is, it doesn't have the right conformation, doesn't have the right shape. And so it doesn't function properly and the plant ends up choking itself to death. But there are these particular plant species called astragalus uh, that know the difference between what sulfur and what selenium and are able to compartmentalize that. And that was essentially my PhD and how, how uh, these plants are able to distinguish one from the other. And through my studies, I ended up, uh, we ended up looking at this selenocysteine methyltransferase enzyme, which takes cysteine or selenocysteine and methylates it using S-methylmethionine as a methyl donor to make methylcysteine or methylselenocysteine. And it, we thought that this SMT enzyme played a crucial role in allowing the plant to tolerate higher levels of selenium inside its tissues uh, by diverting the selenoamino acids from protein production. And uh, essentially we came up with this pathway where the plant is able to uh, take selenate um, and sulfate assimilating uh, pathways and are able to move them out, the selenium containing amino acids out of the pathway and allow the plant to continue to make um, its proper enzymes, its proper proteins. Uh, during that PhD, I had an awesome opportunity. Um, Professor Salt, David Salt, ended up getting a grant uh, from the government, from NSF, um, where he was, um, he, he said that he would create a museum exhibit about omics and about all of the omics that we were dealing with, that we were learning, that we were exploring, that we were developing. 
in his lab. Uh, David Salt ended up becoming the father of what's called ionomics, which is the elemental composition of organisms and looking at how genes drive that elemental composition all the way down to the, 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 uh, the common atoms that, that we know. Um, and so this omics world um, exhibit is something that I ended up taking, again, ownership. I saw that opportunity. I love working on communication and educating kids about plant biology, about what we were doing, molecular biology. And I took this as an opportunity. And I said to David, I said, I'm going to do this. We're going to do a whole museum exhibit. And I'm going to include this as a chapter of my thesis. Are you OK with that? And we went and we spoke to the, to the rest of the committee and asked them permission and they thought it was great. So at the end, I ended up building a museum exhibit and including that as a chapter in my thesis. And the museum exhibit was called Genomics Explorer. And what we, I ended up doing is building a three-dimensional module of a cell where people actually walked into the cell and they were able to look at the different organelles and look at videos of the organelles. And the videos were hosted by this animated cartoon creature that I called Saito, who was your helper inside the cell and explained how the mitochondria worked or how chloroplasts work or the nucleus and what's happening. And in one of those, I ended up writing a grant to develop these video games that went along with the museum exhibit. And I can probably pop them up here at some point in time and you can guys see them. Uh, but they're interactive video games where you have to figure out the right elements to make a plant thrive. And then you can inspect when the plant is thriving or when it's not doing so well, you can inspect what's happening inside of the chloroplast, inside of the thylakoids, inside of the mitochondria and, and look at what's happening with electron transport or look at the nucleus and look at what's happening with, uh, with uh, gene expression patterns. And we submitted this, uh, these three modules to, uh, to a competition and we won first place in the NSF Science uh, Journal. We were published in it as well as first place in, uh, in digital, uh, I think it was digital platforms or something like that. And we ended up calling this the Genomics Digital Lab, which continues today and was formed even into an educational uh, company uh, that serves even still today, you can access it. And it grew to be other elements, other modules that are interactive and allow you to learn as you play along. That was the idea. I was always motivated to teach and get people to learn by having fun and not realize that they were learning. During my postdoc, I had the opportunity of working with Dr. Clint Chapel, who was the head of the biochemistry department at that time. Uh, Clint is an expert in the phenylpropanoid pathway, which is the pathway in plants that leads to what are called lignin precursors. And lignin is what makes plants woody. It's the woody tissue. And 
what I was doing with Clint uh, was trying to create uh, enzyme chimeras. We were taking these cytochrome P450 enzymes that participate in the phenylpropanoid pathway, and we were taking them from different plant species, and I was trying to stitch together uh, enzymes that were bifunctional or multifunctional by, by putting together these different elements from the different species. And so using a scheme of primer extension PCR, I designed and developed a robotic system by which to create hundreds and thousands of these chimeras. Um, and start, start using my knowledge and, and my abilities in mass spectrometry also to ascertain their activity. So trying to combine both, uh, both, of, uh, both of these to try to design and synthesize enzymes that, that were functional. That put me in what's called the Binley Bioscience Center at Purdue University. And Purdue is, you know, made up of colleges and inside the College of Science, for example, you have department, the Department of Biology uh, or math or whatever it might be. But there is also this place at Purdue called Discovery Park, which does not belong to any of the colleges and its sole purpose is just for research. And that's what I was doing during my postdoc, was trying to create these enzyme chimeras, but it exposed me to all of the realm and possibilities that are in the Binley Bioscience Center. And it put me to work with Richard Kuhn and Charles Bach. Richard was the director of the Binley Bioscience Center and Charles was the managing director or director of operations. And it was, I found this position as a center project manager that became open in the Binley Bioscience Center. And I applied for it. I thought, oh, okay, but I have nothing to lose. I'm doing this postdoc. I like doing this postdoc, but this project management for the center for all of the Binley sounded really interesting. And I thought, well, you know, I don't have much project management experience formalized but I do manage my own projects. I do manage my own experiments and I plan them and so on. And, you know, at the end I stuck my neck out. I asked some questions and I was able to apply for the job and I got the job. And that gave me the opportunity of work in the center. That is, you, I want you to think about it as a, um, as a shopping mall for, researchers and scientists. It is a place where you can do microscopy and look at all kinds of uh, different cell types. Uh, uh, so super resolution microscopy and all the way to in vivo uh, imaging techniques as well. There's uh, biophysical analysis. There is computational analysis as well and, and informatics uh, that goes along and helps with all of the metabolite profiling analysis that is done using mass spectrometry or the protein uh, composite analysis, proteomics and metabolomics. Uh, there's also a facility that is in partnership with our vet school that we call the Translational Pharmacology Facility, where we're able to do pharmacological testing in preclinical models. 
Um, and so when you can imagine, you can collect uh, samples and blood from those models, bring them back to the lab, ascertain you know, their metabolism, ascertain their immune uh, response uh, by looking at their different cell types using flow cytometry and cell separation techniques. And so this place really is a technology driven place that serves the faculty um, and faculty from all different departments. Uh, this is a neutral place where we do things in bacteria, plants, humans, uh, as you heard me say, but mice, rats, pigs, whatever, uh, whatever, um, you know, uh, whatever organism or model that, that we're working on to look at diseases, to look at uh, explore basic biology, uh, make new materials. Uh, and so there's, there's a wealth of uh, activity and dynamic movement in the Binley Bioscience Center. And uh, that one of the things that I got to do in there is to start working in what's called the Indiana Clinical and Translational Sciences Institute. My charge as a center project manager in the Binley Bioscience Center also gave me this charge to act as what's, as what's called the navigator for Purdue um, in this Indiana CTSI. And the navigator um, is the person in that particular institution that helps connect outside of the institution and for those outside to connect inside of the institution. The Indiana CTSI is a collaboration between Indiana University School of Medicine and also Indiana University, the Bloomington campus. There's also branch campuses that are now in cities like Evansville and Terre Haute. It's also a collaboration and part of that infrastructure is with the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana and obviously Purdue University. So it's three institutions put together, allied uh, to improve translational sciences for the state of Indiana and by which to improve the health of, of people in the state of Indiana. And this gave me, as you can imagine, an unbelievable network by which to work with. Uh, both people in the Indiana University system and people in the Notre Dame system. And what we do is that we try to improve the efficiency by which translational science research occurs. Um, let's say there's an investigator at Purdue and they're doing some work on a diagnostic like what we're gonna talk about, a COVID diagnostic, and they need some clinical samples from people that are infected with COVID. So I am the one that goes and uh, finds the collaborator at the School of Medicine who's seeing patients who can have the potential of collecting those samples that can then be analyzed with the partner at Purdue University. So these are the types of uh, programs and ways that we try to improve how the discovery from the laboratory setting can be applied to the bedside of the patient in a little bit more concerted manner. The opportunity of the Indiana CTSI also 
is uh, larger, meaning that Purdue University is a land-grant institution, and essentially we have our representatives in all 92 counties of Indiana. And that allows us deep access into the populations, into the communities of Indiana. And Indiana, I'm stuck here in, in, in Purdue University between a cornfield and a soybean field. It's a very rural state other than the urbanized centers like Indianapolis, Fort Wayne, you could say Lafayette, Greater Lafayette would be a, an urbanized center. The, the state is by far a rural state. Being part of the Indiana CTSI has also allowed me to create programs. And one of them that I'm proud to tell you about is this postdoc challenge, where postdocs get to participate in writing applications to use up to $5,000 to use some of these core facilities that I showed you in the Binley Bioscience Center. But what's more important is that I get them to participate with me in the review session following NIH guidelines. And so they get to see both sides of the coin, meaning that they get to be the applicant, but they also get to be the reviewers and see what happens behind the scenes to uh, determine which ones are the best proposals, which one's the best science to invest our $5,000 in. Um, so that gives them a, a really great perspective. It gives me a lot of joy to be able to set up programs like this and be part of that uh, training for, for such an important group of, of people, of scientists that sometimes get disregarded. I'll just say that. Very quickly, uh, when Richard Kuhn was asked to form the Purdue Institute of Inflammation, Immunology and Infectious Disease in 2016. He called me, he said, Tommy, they've asked me to do this and I would like you to come and help me do this. We had worked together for many years in the Binley Bioscience Center. And I said, absolutely, Richard, let's go put this thing together. And in 2016, we start working to form this institute that is divided into four uh, research foci areas, uh, one being imaging and diagnostics. We have a very strong uh, group of engineers, biomedical engineers, uh, and, and even from our human health sciences college, a wonderful group of, uh, of investigators looking at MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, for example. But with that, all kinds of imaging modalities, all kinds of imaging techniques that are being used to create new types of diagnostics. Um, uh, we also have a division of immunology and inflammation, as you can imagine from our name, and infectious disease as well. Uh, Dr. Suresh Mittal, uh, distinguished professor in veterinary medicine and He's been working on adenovirus uh, vectors for a long time, and uh, he's, he's working also in, in this area with us. Um, we have an area of prevention and intervention as well. And I'm so glad to be able to work with such a wonderful group of people. Uh, Richard and I work closely with Robin Benson and Melanie Lindsay, who are part of our administrative team. 
and we serve almost as a as a new body for research for many faculty. Uh, they have their own departments and they have their own cultures in their own departments. But what we try to do is bring new faculty together, uh, bring new disciplines together to go after more complex uh, funding opportunities as well. We've done a lot of global initiatives. Uh, one thing that that we were part of is bringing cryo electron microscopy to India. Um, Richard was part of the, the group that celebrated the inauguration of the first cryo EM at INSTEM at the NCBS, the National Center for Biological Sciences in Bangalore. Um, and uh, we, continue, we continue to work very heavily in that area of cryo-electron microscopy, especially for structural biology, structural virology, understanding the structure and function of proteins and, and uh, in, that, in that capacity. It's a remarkable uh, piece of technology. And we formed now a consortium, a regional consortium here for cryo-electron microscopy. One of the things that I'm developing now and that you probably, I hope you get to see, I'm publishing a paper. We're hopefully gonna get it out very soon. I, it, I'm waiting to hear back from the journals is this paper on a program concept that we've been working on, which is called reciprocal innovation. You know, most people, when they think about global health, they think about, um, you know, a high income uh, earning country going to a low income uh, earning country and uh, going to implement some kind of intervention there, some kind of resolution. And it seems very much that when you say global health to people, they think of this unidirectional uh, flow of resources, information, knowledge. And I'm trying to dispel that where we're doing in the Indiana CTSI and the Indiana University um, uh, Global Health Research Program is try to create this concept where there's a bi-directional iterative exchange of technology and methodology or processes that can help both countries. So for example, yeah. in Indiana, we have an HIV problem in Southern part of the state due to uh, needle sharing. We have an opioid heroin problem in, in the Southern part of the state and people are sharing needles and passing HIV uh, uh, along with that. In Kenya, there's an HIV problem due to unprotected sexual intercourse but the nature, the rurality of how the distances by which people who are living with HIV and AIDS in Kenya looks very much like the distances that the people would have to travel in Southern Indiana. And we've learned through our international programs, this AMPATH program that IU School of Medicine has put together, they've learned how to deal with antiretrovirals and dealing with, with taking care of these patients in Kenya. And they use that information now to implement similar programs in Indiana, Southern Indiana. Mm -hmm. So it's this concept where we can both have mutual benefit. So Charu, maybe you can, or yeah. whoever is coordinating the questions. Yeah, so um, uh, I mean, you know, till now it's been such a roller coaster, it would put Disney to shame. 
and <laughs> I mean, you follow your passion you know you you really you made the best of every opportunity and it really reaffirms that it doesn't matter where you start um i'm sure there's many questions uh, i think you can all raise your hands and then vikram will kind of direct you uh, towards who gets to ask first and if you're shy just drop your questions in the chat box uh, while everybody's thinking i already have a question <laughs> so um what i wanted to ask you is that um the uh, animal and plant cells are very different and uh, you you're now working on uh, the animal aspect of it so is there um uh, i mean do you feel that your expertise in uh, plant or um, the plant based molecular science that you study gives you more insight in some matters and also does it help you be a more ethical scientist oh good question um i i don't know I think it does make make me be a more ethical scientist because uh, you know I can't I can't anymore take thousands of seeds and like spread them and ask my scientific question. But now we, if you're dealing with animals, there's a lot more uh, sensitivity there, and so I don't want to waste life, uh, and I don't want to you know cause suffering. One of the things my mom once asked me, Tommy, why are you going into plant biology? I always thought you liked animals. You may, maybe you should go into vet school or animal science. I said, you know, mom, plants don't have faces and they don't cry. So when I mash them up and I yeah, try to extract their DNA, meh, you know, and she kind of like, okay, <laughs> but it, it's definitely a good question uh, because it does make you pause, make you think. I always said when we were at the Binley Bioscience Center and we were running samples uh, from cancer patients or something like that, I would I would always say, you know, these are patients. These samples are unbelievably precious. People had to donate of their lives to give us these samples so that we could look at them under the, under the microscope or in the mass back or whatever we were doing. So let's treat them with a lot of care. Um, I don't think I was that careful when when I was working with plants, meaning that uh, you know you there's more plants to 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 be gotten. Uh, meaning, um, and then the other question, you know, I. I there is there's a certain plasticity if I if you want between cells that I'll, I'll, or a plasticity in my mind about you know an animal cell and a and a plant cell yes they're very different uh, they function very differently uh, but there was a lot that I learned about the manipulation of metabolism in plants that gave me this ability to look maybe even at the DNA and the molecules that now I can relate to investigators that are doing that uh, more, right? And so I don't know that it gives me an advantage, but I can certainly uh, understand when they tell me, hey, you know, I'm trying to look at NADH, NADPH, I know where they're talking about. And that's universal no matter where you, where, if it's an animal cell or a, or a plant cell. 
sure, if we're talking about some photosynthetically driven activity, yeah, okay, you know, can't do that in the humans, but you know, that that's obvious right there. Uh, Shruti, please go ahead. Hi, sir. I'm Shruti. Uh, I'm from food biotechnology background and I worked in a biologicals company for one year. While I was browsing through your uh, startup company about the identify sensors, I could see that uh, you develop sensors to detect chemicals. Um, I mean, that are harmful for honeybee population. That was very fascinating because I've seen a lot of technologies using sensors for detecting, um, you know, decay in food, all that, those things I've seen, but this is something very different that I could see. Can you elaborate more on that? Sure. And I just want to, I want you to, I want you to know that there is this company called Identify Sensors that was started before I started with them, this new startup called Identify Sensors Biologics, okay? And so they had formed this company with these sensors uh, for detecting not only, uh, you know, these harmful substances, but they, for herbicides, for pesticides, for explosives, uh, shipping containers, they had already started this and they, the company holds those patents for, for those. So the honeybee population, um, I, I'm not entirely sure what are the, what are the detection uh, molecules per se, if that's what you're asking. But what we're doing now is that we took some of that knowledge and they had a patent also for a reader that would read out uh, the, the sensor output, right? And so they came to Purdue first asking, hey, do you guys make sensors uh, for, we're, we wanna develop these sensors for fish spoilage. You being a food scientist, I'm sure you can appreciate that fish uh, spoils uh, and you know it's a very expensive uh, food item. And if you can think of it, you know, it's transported all over the world, a piece of salmon, for example, to, to be brought to North America or wherever it needs to go, it needs to be monitored. And so, you know, the idea was let's get this fish uh, sensor going. And we were hit at that same time by COVID. And they said, and by the way, if you have anything that looks like a COVID sensor, we should pursue that. At which point I was working already with a professor in materials engineering by the name of Leah Stanshu. And Leah uh, had been working with Richard and myself for some time trying to develop these uh, electrochemical sensors uh, that would uh, recognize pathogens. And through nanotech type of applications, looking at minute differences in, in, uh, in the sensor output when there was an interaction uh, with a pathogen. And so we started to go after that and started to develop it because we saw COVID was just there to stay. 
And we start really working hard towards uh, making the COVID sensors. And the plan there is to, if you think about it, what we wanna do is have a handheld device that you can check not only for COVID, but you can check for flu, you can check for other, uh, other you know, uh, viruses that might come through an upper respiratory uh, sample of saliva. And so we want to build this diagnostic lab for you in your bathroom medicine cabinet so that every morning if you had something, you could check. Or if your, your child had something, you could check the child. And the ability of having this reader was tremendous because the readout from the sensor gets, uh, gets transmitted from this reader to the cloud and the interpretation of the test happens on the cloud and is sent back to the person's phone or device. But at the same time, what we can do is use that data to inform you know, the, the national agencies that are worried about where is the spread, where do we need more help, where are the resources, and so on and so forth. Mm. So that's the exciting part. And, um, you know, Purdue is, um, I, I gotta say, this university has a lot of great resources that is allowing us to make good progress on the nanotechnology side of things and in making these sensors, in manufacturing these sensors, looking at processes by which to improve the and optimize the sensor performance too. And it, it's, uh, it's been quite a journey, very exciting so far. Right. Yes, Narin, please. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, uh, so Thomas, I think one of the, as I mentioned to you before the call, um, you know, one of the challenges we have in these kind of sessions is it's very difficult for people to ask questions. So uh, how, how in your education or pedagogy processes, how do you encourage people to ask questions? Actually, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, first, I would say you have to be courageous. Don't... Um, and courageous means that you have to have a certain image of yourself that doesn't matter what anybody thinks or says, you're going to be okay. And I was always the type of student that would ask questions. And I cannot tell you how many times I would have other students come up to me and say, oh, I'm so glad you asked that question because that was something that was also bothering me. Um, so I would, I, in everything you do in life, there is no risk. There is no risk of asking a question. If, if people are going to think that you're less intelligent because you asked a question, that's, that's what they think. You are now more empowered with the knowledge by asking a question. Even mm -hmm. if you think it's not an intelligent question, even if you think, oh, I don't want to speak, I don't want to say something, many times it's, it's better to take the courage and see, oh, I did it and it wasn't so bad and I got my answer. And if you still feel like you're not, uh, you're not willing and able or courageous, please type it in, send us, send me a, a LinkedIn message and I'll try to answer your questions as much as I can, as soon as I can. Um, I Charu, think Pratik please. can ask the question before me. And, okay, Pratik, um, please, I, I uh, you can ask the final question. 
Hello, Dr. Sors. Uh, first of all, boiler up. <laughs> I just had a quick question. So um, just wanted to ask, apart from scientific uh, facilities, what other uh, places are close to your heart at Purdue? Thank you. Oh, okay. Uh, thank you. Yeah, you know, uh, Purdue has, um, has a lot of great lecture halls. Uh, and one of the programs that I've set up is this lecture hall series where I get my grad students to present to high schoolers. And I get high schoolers to come to Purdue and sit with us in these large lecture halls. I don't know if you know, if, if you can remember the feeling you had when you first enter a huge lecture hall in an auditorium like that and mm -hmm. how, uh, you know, sometimes uh, you feel a little scared. And so I wanted to dispel that, but there's some beautiful lecture halls at Purdue uh, that, are, that are really, really neat. Um, and Purdue now too is expanding an area that is very interesting. This Discovery Park has expanded to Discovery Park District with living and retail space that is starting to come up. And the idea is that we're gonna be able to use this to create a smart city-like uh, research with living interaction. Um, so there's a lot of you know, smart city type developments that people wanna do. Well, we think we can bring the computation, the engineering, all of the research, the healthy living and climate and all of the disciplines that are uh, necessary to help build a carbon neutral uh, living space and do research for sensors inside your living space so that you can reduce the amount of energy, reduce the amount of electricity that you use. Uh, so these types of things, automated delivery systems or automated robotic systems that can, you know, uh, pick you up. And you know, this this is coming. Uh, so we're we're excited to to have this district here and our neighborhood to start to develop some of that as well. So there is I, an I airport at Purdue too. I'll say we have an airport. We have a couple of golf courses. I like golfing. <laughs> so um, I think uh, uh, let's get to know um, Tommy a little bit more through a rapid fire round that Shruti will host, and uh, then we can, uh, if we have time, we can have another question. I know there's one in the chat box. Otherwise, I'll put Tommy's LinkedIn profile in the chat box and y'all can ask uh, your questions over there. Great. Okay, so quick five questions. Um, I hope, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so since you've worked in a lot of, uh, like developing a lot of sensors in different domains of science, so which one did you enjoy the most developing? Well, so far, this one is the, the most stressful because we're really pushing this COVID sensor. We're really pushing to get it out there and commercialize it. I'm enjoying it the most. I'm learning the most about it, uh, not only about the science, but also the um, startup business enterprise and what's required and what does it take? Uh, you have to remember coming from a university, it's very much faculty driven. Here was a company that came to us and is helping to build this other startup. Very interesting. 
Okay. Um, so you have developed a lot of transgenic plants and now there is a trend of organic plants. People mostly prefer having organic. So which one do you support? Oh, uh, you know, I, I want to make sure that we are not uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater if we say transgenic plants. Um, many of the plants that, that are used are or designed were, were first designed to help the farmers, uh, help the farmers deal with drought, help the farmers deal with cold, or help the farmers uh, produce a more nutritive, um, a more nutritive plant. We have a great example of a vitamin A uh, rice uh, that that was you know was made, and I'm still very much a proponent of transgenics to improve the value, to improve the way that we are able to grow these plants. There's a lot of people still hungry in this world. And I know organics, I agree with organics if you can, but there's a lot happening in this world that makes me believe that unless we find more sustainable ways that can, if you want organics, okay, but it's not really very, very, um, very scalable, if, if you want, you know, um, it, it's difficult for larger companies like McDonald's to deal with 2000 different farms, rather than one or two large farms, if that makes sense. Okay, what is the one driving force that always motivates you to develop different technology? Just one driving force. Uh, curiosity. Okay. Uh, yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. When you're not working, uh, what you would like to pursue? Just one thing. <laughs> um, I play a lot of music. I, I play a lot of guitar. I do sing as well too. Great. And the final question. So what is your lifelong dream that you always aspire on dream? I, you know, I, I, I I'm not, I, I think my lifelong dream is to be able to uh, make a small mark, uh, be able to live a life where I, I feel like I've contributed uh, whatever I could. Um, um, I have children, two, three beautiful kids, and my lifelong dream is really for them to be good, good people and also to keep up with, with a little bit of this uh, motivation that I have inside of me to bring fairness to people and uh, motivate them to do more, motivate them to be better educated. Um, so this, this is why I've stayed at, at the university for so long, um, because I am motivated by that and motivated by, you know, progress and, and helping us uh, improve. Um, we take for granted very much that the roads that are paved, that the stop sign, the cars that we drive and the phones and all of this, that we, we take it all for granted that this was just made like this when we were born. But no, it took people to do this stuff. And, and you know, it, it takes a lot of hard work to make an impact and help a lot of people. So you know, I'm, I'm inspired by that and I hope I can pass that on to them as well. Thank you so much for answering the question. It was really insightful. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking.
first of all thank you so much for this uh, really inspiring talk that you gave i think the journey that you took from the beginning and i don't think you we talked about your childhood uh, and i understand you're from venezuela or you grew up in venezuela and and your journey that you've traversed over these years from moving from plant biology to cancer biology to entrepreneurship i think is fascinating i think more than a question i would i uh, maybe i will ask the question in in more for the other people who are on the call what what does it take to get a postdoctoral fellowship or a graduate program in purdue university <laughs> so to to get a program started or to get a to, to get, get a to get admission to get a postdoc oh yes or or a graduate um, or a graduate yeah you know i really think it takes making contact with people mm -hmm. um you can apply it's you can apply cold you know i send my paper and wait hopefully i'll get something but then you're just uh, somebody else who did the same thing mm -hmm. and i would recommend that if you if there is research that you like if there is somebody doing that research at purdue please uh, let's get in touch with them. I can help. As I said, I'm a navigator. I can help with making those contacts. We do have a Purdue India office, if you don't know. Uh, we have a lot of uh, great collaborations with different Indian institutions. And, you know, it, it's an easy, it's an easy transition or it's an easy, it's an easy uh, intake. Um, it, it does take making contact with people bridging a connection, um, creating a bit of a rapport, we will help if that person wants to bring the person to be a postdoc or to do a PhD in their lab, we will help. And, and it, it's a fairly, fairly routine thing that we do. We have done this quite a bit. So it's not too difficult, but it does take effort on the individual to make contact. Thank you so much. Uh, I think Charu has put your information on the LinkedIn. So yeah. yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, really, uh, thank you so much, uh, Tommy. Every time I talk to you, I'm reminded of just how humble of a person you are. And you have so many achievements and you're so happy to share the information. And obviously you started this right at your PhD with developing all of these platforms to educate people. Um, we are indeed very lucky to have been mentored by you today. Uh, I. I feel that uh, now that you know we're at almost at the top of the hour, um, please send in all your burning questions to um, Tommy through his LinkedIn. Uh, the information I've already put in the chat box, and you can also look up the Purdue India program. Uh, and uh, you know, if you're interested, there's great agriculture. Purdue is known for agriculture, and um, there's a great uh, new uh, biophysics structural biology department as well from a professor from Rams who was uh, previously at um, NCBS. So um, that's that's a great program as well. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm sorry to everybody who couldn't ask questions um, and please uh, send them across and uh, goodbye for now. And we hope you will tune in next week. A network should last a lifetime. Let us help you create lasting professional relationship with our world-class mentors through the Biopatrika Industry Mentorship Program. A strategic guidance program unlike no other, full of expert interviews, industry internship opportunities, CV writing, 
inflection point analysis life maps and of course the gateway to your dream career for a limited time only all our services are freely available for you as we truly want you to succeed